before we read again from Ephesians chapter 1, I wish to give a word of caution to myself as the preacher this evening and to all of you as hearers. When I first preached to you from this first chapter of Ephesians on June the 9th, our focus was on the closing four verses where Paul lays before us the exaltation of Christ. I had three closing applications that evening and did not have time for all three. I left one line of application unaddressed, and we're going to return to that one line of application this evening and give all of our time to that one line of application. I'm persuaded that this expanded application is organically tied to Ephesians 1, 20 to 23, and that we will remain faithfully within what one of my mentors refers to as the lids of the Bible. But this kind of application will take us into lines of thought and reflection that are directly tied to my efforts of discernment and judgment. I encourage you to be like the Bereans this evening, early Christian converts who, according to 2 Luke 17.11, excelled others because the Bereans, quote, examined the Scriptures daily to see whether the Scriptures actually taught what Paul was preaching. Please exercise with freedom and vigor your discerning responsibilities as a Christian believer. Now, in this first chapter of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul has come to be praying for the Christians to whom he was writing, and in effect, he was praying for us, and he prays, we're going to begin in verse 20, he prays that we would know the power of God, we want to experience the power of God which power he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The canonical letter of Ephesians is a literary masterpiece. At a certain level, we can say that about every book of the Bible, but not in exactly the same way. The human authors bring their own backgrounds, their temperaments, their vocabularies to their spirit-guided writing. Matthew's gospel does not have the subtlety and the nuance that we find in John's gospel. And Paul's letters to churches afflicted with serious problems will necessarily so focus on those problems that Paul the theologian is not going to be found to soar and soar as he does here in Ephesians. Have you noticed, for example, the use of the word all? here in these closing verses of Ephesians 1. Verse 21, far above all rule 
and authority and power. Verse 22, he put all things under his feet, gave him as head over all things to the church, his body the fullness of him who fills all and in all. That little three-letter word is found 50 times in Ephesians. The actual Greek word has five letters, but it's translated with our smaller three-letter word 50 times. And then here in these closing verses, there's a piling up of what Peter O'Brien refers to as Paul's fullness language. Verse 23, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I did not comment on that closing phrase of the chapter when we were last here. And so what does Paul mean when he says that Christ fills all in all? Well, the fullness language of Ephesians helps us because chapter 5, verse 18 gives us the command to be filled with the Spirit. And that's explained by the first half of verse 18, which says, Don't be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, what happens to a man who's drunk with wine? He's under the control of the wine. That control may show itself in cruelty and, and anger, or, or it may show itself in giddiness and foolishness. But it's still the wine controlling the man. And Paul is saying, just as wine controls a man when he's drunk, so you be filled with, you be controlled by the Holy Spirit. So, when Paul says that Christ fills all in all, he clearly means that Christ is in control of everything. He is ruling the whole universe. But when we were last here in this chapter, there was one line of application which we did not pursue because of the limitations of time. I made three applications, all of them with the language, Paul's chosen language, or with that phrase, Paul's chosen language. And here was the third line of application. Paul's chosen language calls us to engage in humble discrimination in how we define the church, which is his body. What the Apostle Paul pens here calls us to humble discrimination in how we understand that phrase in verse 23, the church, which is his body. Now, it's convenient to read that phrase as a lofty description of the church universal and thus to escape any felt demand of humble discrimination about the local manifestations of the church which we observe in our day or which we know about from church history. But that convenient way of reading the text is the result of an exaggerated distinction between the church universal and the church and its various local expressions. I'm persuaded, brothers and sisters, that when the apostles used the word church, when they used that word, they had in view the people of God, all the people of God, all those who were united to Christ, but always with the understanding that the people of God, wherever they were, would assemble. The church, it's all of those united to Christ, and all those united to Christ are going to find 
themselves connecting to one another in various local expressions of the church. Let me make one more preliminary, preliminary observation before coming directly to our question this evening. And that one other observation is that an intelligent, sanctified effort to engage in this humble discrimination should lead us to acknowledge what the Holy Spirit has done in church history. The church, which is his body, well, we don't just look around at the world in which we're living. We, we have the blessing of being a people who are part of history. Jesus Christ has been building his church since the days of the apostles. And so we have the opportunity to engage in some kind of examination of the church, both presently and historically. Or to frame this as a question, how do we assess that period of church history that we know as the Protestant Reformation? Was the Reformation a recovery of the biblical gospel, or was it a horrible disruption to the unity of the church, which is the, which is the body of Christ? In these days, when we have movements like evangelicals and Catholics together, it's very easy to find those who will say, well, it's so sad that we've had 500 years of disagreement and misunderstanding. What a pity that we've had all of this theological debate for 500 years because we're really preaching the same gospel, and now we've got to get all of us together and reach the Muslims and the Buddhists. Well, my friends, are you aware that the papacy made its declarations following the Reformation, which declarations of the papacy have never been withdrawn? You want to Google something that will interest you? Google the Council of Trent. That's all you have to say, or pardon me, write. Google the Council of Trent and read the canons of the Council of Trent, statements that remain to this day the official declarations of the papacy, and you will find that Rome has pronounced anathema over most of the things you believe from the Bible. Rome has pronounced a curse upon much that we hold dear as Christian believers. And please, my friends, do not get overly excited when you meet a Roman Catholic who gives an intelligent confession of Christ alone for the need to be right with God in the mercy and the grace of God, we trust that Roman Catholic person has come to understand the gospel. And thank God for all the ways in which the gospel is going out today uh, through the phenomenon that we call the internet. The best of gospel preaching can be found, I'm sure, there are Roman Catholics who are getting on the internet and hearing the gospel preached. And some of them are believing that gospel. But hundreds of such confessions make no change in papal dogma. Zero. I've enjoyed a long friendship with a Scottish, British man named Bill Hughes. He pastored in various parts of Great Britain for a number of years, and 
His latter years of pastoring happened in Florida, being an associate to a dear friend of mine named Robert Fisher. And there was a period of time when a group of nuns in Ireland gathered together inside the convent and listened regularly to the sermons of Bill Hughes. They did it, I think, for several years. Somehow they had gotten hold of some of his sermons, and of course, you know, these dignified British men, they sound brilliant as soon as they open their mouths, right? You know, they just start talking, and you know, you start melting as this beautiful British brogue comes out, and Pastor Hughes has an extra dose of that. And what do we say? Thank God, thank God for a group of nuns that gathered to hear the gospel. And many of them came to faith in Christ. But that makes no change in the papacy or papal dogma. Well, then back to our question for this evening. How do we identify the church, which is the body of Christ? And our challenge, of course, is to answer that question with biblical balance. It is narrow bigotry to answer the church, which is the body of Christ, is only those gatherings of Christians who affirm the five points of Calvinism and apply the regulative principle of public worship. That's narrow bigotry. But it's theological stupidity to say the church, which is the body of Christ, is any group of people who choose to see themselves as an expression of the church and, and <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> put the word church in their name. You know, I did something this morning. I, I came to Sunday school uh, by myself, and so I was able to leave a few minutes early. And I did that deliberately because I wanted to drive past uh, a, a building not far from here, a very attractive building down on the corner of Brandon and Grandin. It's, it used to be a Mormon building. The Mormons were there for years, but now it's the building of the Universalist, Unitarian, and what's the third word? Church. And then across the street is Christ Lutheran Church. Now, at Christ Lutheran Church right now, there's a man teaching the adult Sunday school named Ed Minuti. I learned this from Phyllis Brokaw. Phyllis Brokaw told me this several months ago. As I see now, all the old-timers are grinning. Ed Minuti was a teacher at Grace Academy the first year Grace Academy opened. And he taught some... Debbie, did you have Mr. Minuti? Yes. Ed Minuti is teaching the adults at Christ Lutheran Church. I bet you he's giving them a lot of Jack Arnold theology. Isn't that wonderful? So there are all kinds of questions that we're not able to answer as clearly as we would like, but I believe we can have some clarity in answering the question that I'm posing, how do we identify the church which is the body of Christ? And I have five responses. Number one, the church which is the body of Christ 
is found in those gatherings of believers where the biblical gospel and the scriptures are given their God-ordained priority in teaching and preaching. And when I use the words biblical gospel, I am not thinking of the most mature expressions of the gospel that you would find in the best of Puritan sermons, but I am thinking of the good news of Christ that's more robust and more defined than Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. How have we come to even ask this question this evening regarding how we identify the church? Well, it's because of our view of Scripture. This question is presented to us, it's posed to us, at least by implication, in a passage of the Scriptures. It's why we are even talking about this tonight. It's our view of the Bible. If our elders had time and opportunity, maybe on a Lord's Day morning, to say, now, please stand and tell us why you joined Grace Church. Um, let's imagine that time gets suspended and we have plenty of time on a Lord's Day morning. And, and pardon? No, 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 yes, that's right, that's right. Magically, all the children are perfectly content and no crying, and yes. <clears throat> but if we had such an occasion, and we all standed, we all stood and started telling why we are a part of this church, the answers would be different. We wouldn't all have the very same answers, but I'll guarantee you we would all have something to say about the Bible. We'd all have something to say about how we view this book and the importance of this book and the importance of the church giving itself to telling people what this book actually teaches. Brothers and sisters, remember the commitment to Scripture that we believe is genuine is not automatically extended by our traditions in the local church. This takes diligence. This takes constant watchfulness, not just from our elders, but from everyone, from all of us. We're determined that the Scriptures will continue to have a God-given priority in the life of this congregation. One of the things that is most heartbreaking to me about an increasing number of churches in Africa is how opening the Scriptures is no longer the priority. There are so many places you go into them now, and the priority is music and choirs. I mean lots of choirs and performing, and dancing, and I'm not there to straighten out things on a Lord's Day morning, so I sit quietly and politely, and I wait until all of it's over, and then I get to preach a bit. But I'm telling you, this is something that I feel very keenly. The place of the Scriptures, the exposition, and the application of the Word of God is beginning to be pushed into the background, and it's having its effects, to be sure. The church is committed to this book. Secondly, the church, which is the body of Christ, is found in those gatherings of believers who take the demands of discipleship seriously enough to carry out biblically intelligent church discipline. 
The church is a group of people who are disciples. They are committed to following Christ. And they understand that one of the ways that Christ keeps us in the way of discipleship is by the discipline that is exercised in the church. Now, have you thought about how little information is really needed for the person to come to faith in Christ? Do you know, you, you don't have to know that there's such a thing as a Bible to come to faith in Christ. You could be off in a remote place where the creation around you and the witness of conscience within you has convinced you that there's a God who is there and you've sinned against that God. And someone could come and tell you a story, a true story about what God did in sending his own son into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how he became a true man and, and, and went and died on the cross in the place of sinners like, like we are here in the jungle together today. And a person could be called to faith in Christ and could believe in Christ and be saved and on his way to heaven and not even know there's such a thing as a Bible. Be unaware that there is this book that we're so concerned with. You see, it's very popular in our day to say, well, the gospel's so simple. It's just this wonderful story we tell people, and, and all of you theologians are confusing things, adding all these details. Oh, my friends, that is folly. Now, there's enough truth to that that it makes it dangerous, but it's a misguided approach. Why? Because God's purpose is not simply to bring us to faith in Christ. God's purpose is to mature us in Christ. That's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians. Ephesians 4.15, God's purpose is for us to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, even Christ. And the church, and the biblically required discipleship of the church, is absolutely necessary to our growing in Christ. Now, when we talk about discipline, let me remind you of something. The Bible tells us about what you can call formative discipline and corrective discipline. And formative discipline, that is the discipline that shapes us, that matures us, we need that all the time. We've had that blessing already. We were able to sit this morning together and hear our pastor open up the opening verses of the Gospel of Mark. And I trust in some measure, we may not even be conscious exactly how, but there's been a, a formative discipline. We've been brought to more maturity. We've been able to grow up into Christ. And then there is corrective discipline. And corrective discipline is something that we hope we never need, but we are utterly foolish to think we can, we can be without it. <clears throat> Let me ask you a question. How many of you expect that when you get back home tonight, your house is going to be just fine.
Okay? Is there anyone... Is there anyone here tonight who's anxious that when you get back home, your house will have burned down? Did did anyone come tonight and sit down and think to yourself, ooh, is my house going to be a pile of ashes when I get back home? Did, Did that thought occur to anyone's mind tonight when you came here to this meeting? No. No. Well, that means that tomorrow morning we can call our insurance man and cancel our fire insurance, right? I mean, we're not worried about the house burning down. That's not a practical point of anxiety. No. We have fire insurance on our house, hoping we never need it but we wouldn't be without it. And I'm standing here tonight as a redeemed sinner with all kinds of weaknesses and imbalances and so many things I wish I could get rid of. And and, and I'm I'm not expecting expecting to fall away from my Savior. I, I want to follow him to the end all of my days. But oh, my friends, I fear what could happen to me without the discipline of the church. And by God's grace, none of us ought to consider being without it. Number three, the church which is the body of Christ is found in those gatherings of believers that observe the sacraments in their simplicity and beauty. We're going to pass over the the long-standing debate regarding whether baptism and the Lord's Supper should be called ordinances or sacraments. Baptists usually prefer ordinances. Presbyterians and, of course, Anglicans opt for sacraments. I tilt towards sacraments because there are many ordinances in Scripture. Labor is an ordinance. Civil government can be considered an ordinance. But if you have an aversion to sacrament, then just be patient for five or six minutes and then I'll be through with this point, all right? The scriptures, my friends, make make the sacraments of great importance. Now, here again is a point where we separate from Rome. Rome has seven sacraments, but we're persuaded that scripture gives us Two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Of course, when we begin to talk seriously about baptism, there's always the proverbial elephant in the room because there is a serious variation of conviction among the best of men, both past and present. And the controversy has by no means politely bypassed Grace Church Roanoke because early pastors were Paedo-Baptists, and Dr. Jack Arnold became a Paedo-Baptist while he was the senior pastor of this church. And Tim Martin, Tim Martin, <laughs> I think, came to have some sympathy for Paedo-Baptist thought. 
Now, if you call Pastor Tim tomorrow to ask him if that's an accurate statement and he denies it, then I've been inaccurate tonight. But I, I think our previous senior pastor had come to have some sympathy to pedo-baptism. Now, here is what I want to say on this delicate matter. It's my hope that the elders and the members of Grace Church will continue to show respect for both historical persuasions. I hope this church will continue to respect pedo-baptism and credo-baptism. And that may prove to be challenging for us as we move into a time of inevitable change. We don't know what the head of the church has planned for our future in terms of pastoral leadership, but I'll tell you one thing, brothers and sisters, it's not going to be the leadership of Tim Martin. The Lord was very kind to Grace Church 17 years ago when he gave Grace Church this extraordinary man named Tim Martin. And uh, Grace Church was in a weakened condition. It wasn't really an attractive place for anybody, I don't think, uh, in terms of being in a pastorate. And God used him in remarkable ways to lead this church to healthier days. But whatever the future of our church is going to be, one thing is clear, it's not going to be with Tim Martin. And will Grace Church become more distinctly Baptistic? I think most of us, most of the members of our church probably have Baptistic convictions or persuasions. But some of our church, some members of Grace Church are committed to baptist It's not easy. It's not easy for a church to have both these traditions operating together in the same congregation. It is not easy. But oh, I hope we'll keep doing it. I hope by the grace of God that we'll never let go of the tension, yeah, the tension of both these traditions being together. Number four, the church, which is the body of Christ, is found in those gatherings of believers that embrace from Christ His commitment to spread the gospel in this lost and needy world. The church, which is His body, receives Christ as God's gift from heaven, hears from Christ His commission to take the gospel to all the world and gives itself in some way to getting the gospel to the world. Now, please do not immediately think missions budget with lots of money. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, a few weeks, pardon me, a few, yeah, a few weeks, well, two months, I'm going to reconnect to a dear man named Gabriel. He's one of the Kenyan pastors that I teach, and I've come to love so much. And we would say Gabriel, but uh, he corrected me and said Gabriel. So I've learned to say Gabriel. You know what that man did? He walked up to a little 
dinky church building in Moranga, Kenya that was locked. Nobody had been using it. It was locked up, and he had a key, and he he took the lock off and walked into the building with his wife and children and one other Kenyan Christian. One family and one more Christian, and they walked into that building and started preaching the gospel and praising God. And now it's a church of about 25 people. And it's, thr- it's thrilling. It's thrilling to be among them and to worship with them. And they're committed to spreading the gospel, not because they have money. They don't have any money. But they're committing to, committed to spreading the gospel there, and they pray. They pray for the advancement of the gospel. Being missional, my friends, means a vital connection to Christ Himself. And that connection will show itself in some kind of engagement with the lost who need the gospel. You know, I'm I'm aware that you hear the expression quite often, post-Christian culture. You heard that? We're living in a post-Christian culture. Well, I'm not sure that's true of Roanoke, Virginia. Seattle is a post-Christian culture. San Francisco is a post-Christian culture. Um, Parts of Boston are a post-Christian culture. But... Roanoke, Virginia, well, I don't think so. Not quite yet, but it's becoming increasingly so. Increasingly, there are going to be the elimination of things in our culture that make people aware of God. How are they going to be made aware of God? How are they going to be arrested with some sense of God's presence and and God's power? My friends... It can happen in the gathering of the church. It can happen in our gathering if God gives us wisdom to know how to conduct ourselves and carry on in a way that even in our gathering reaches out to those without Christ. Well, let me give you the fifth answer that I have to this question. The church, which is the body of Christ, is found in those gatherings of believers who give themselves to the ministry of intelligent, earnest, believing prayer. The church is a praying people. We have that wonderful summary in Acts 2.42. These continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and in the breaking of bread and in fellowship and in the prayers Now, that may be a reference to the regular hours of prayer at the temple, but it clearly indicates that from the beginning, the church was a praying people. By definition, the Lord Jesus said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. I'm grateful for the set times of prayer that we have here at Grace Church. Wednesday noon, 
Wednesday evening, Lord's Day evening at 5.30, and some other times. You know, there's some women in this church that usually go to three prayer meetings a week. And they're not the youngest women in our gathering. Thanks be to God for those women. Thanks be to God for every person who comes and prays. But can it be said, Grace Church as a church is a praying church? As a church, we are a a praying church. Can that be said? I'm not sure. Seems to me the jury is still out on that. There are Wednesday evenings when if we did not have some teenagers show up to pray, the Wednesday night prayer meeting would only be a handful of us. And my challenge, my friends, my challenge to each of us is that we take steps to so participate in some expression of the praying that goes on here that the day will come when it can be said that church is a praying church. Not just that they have some praying people, but it is indeed a praying church. From the time of the Reformation, it's been a healthy tradition to say that the church is marked by three things. These were Calvin's three marks of the church, and it became the dominant assumption in the Reformation. And the three things are the faithful preaching of the Word, the faithful administration of the sacraments, and the faithful exercise of church discipline. Now, I've taken those three. Is everyone listening? Is everyone listening to what I'm saying now? I I want everyone to please listen. I want everyone to listen to the last few minutes. If you've been doing other things, please listen these last few minutes. Well, I've taken those three agreed-upon characteristics of the church, preaching of the word, ministration of the sacraments, exercise of church discipline, and I've added two. I've added missions and prayer. And I will tell you, brothers and sisters, that when I started trying to work this out, I didn't didn't have a strong persuasion that I was on target. But the more the Lord helped me to think and to connect texts and principles, I believe that what I've set before you tonight is an accurate statement of how we should understand the church, which is His body. Now, I'm keenly aware that everything I've said this evening has been addressed to the covenant community, the church. There's been very little spoken directly to those 
who have yet to take your place in the covenant community. You've yet to openly say, yes, I believe the truths that are taught and preached here. I'm now trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. I belong to Him. I, I want to be one of His people. You've not yet openly said that. But there's something I want to say to those of you that some would call covenant children. Some would not use that terminology if referring to you. But I'm convinced that there is much more agreement about you, you children, some of whom would call you covenant children, others wouldn't use that terminology. I'm convinced that there's really much more agreement among us because, because you, are, you are brought near to the richest blessings that God has to offer to His people. I mean, you're here tonight, and you were here last week, and last month, and thank God you're here. Oh, we're so thankful you're here. Your parents have carefully taught you about God and about yourself and about the Lord Jesus Christ, and you've been encouraged again and again to believe in Christ and repent. But here's what I want to say to you this evening. All that instruction, all that love, all those prayers have really lifted you up. They've lifted you up and they've taken you to the doors of the kingdom. They, they, they've, just, they've just laid you right down at the kingdom doors. And in one marvelous sense, you're not far from the kingdom. The kingdom is near, and you, by the grace of God, can step across into the kingdom and say, I'm here. This is where I belong. This is where I want to be. I believe in this Christ. I trust Him. I want Him to be my Lord and Master, and I want to be counted with these people. Now, there's another alternative, isn't there? There's another choice. It's to stand up right at the door of the kingdom and to say, no. I don't want to be in there. I don't want to be part of that. But right now, you're here. You're near. And the door is open again. And as I pray, as I pray for you, I want to encourage you to pray. And pray, Lord Jesus, I'm coming to you. I'm stepping inside your kingdom. I'm trusting you. Take me. And he will. He will.
us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have come near to us. You sent your own Son down to us. You ordained that he would become one of us. He took our place. He bore our sins. And now we believe by his Holy Spirit he invites us afresh to come. Oh Lord, whatever resistance there might be in our hearts, whatever knows there may be coming from our souls, would you overcome them? Would you hush them? And would you bring us near to yourself, Lord Jesus? We pray in your name. Amen.